We're going to talk this morning about the hour has come. I don't usually title the messages, but and we're going to sort of look at an overview of the events from last week in history, Palm Sunday through today in history. In uh, John chapter 2, there was an event. It was a wedding at Cana in Galilee. You recall Jesus and his disciples were in, invited to the wedding. And as the wedding feast was going along, the uh, wine ran out. They were out of wine. And Jesus' mother Mary was concerned about this. I mean, that was a big deal. You know, you got this big wedding feast going on. It would be very uh, bad <laughs> society-wise for this to, event to have happened like this. And so she comes to Jesus and says, hey, they're out of wine. And Jesus says, in verse 4 of chapter 2, he says to her, woman, and he wasn't being disrespectful, that's what he called women. <laughs> woman, what does your concern have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. So Jesus was talking about this hour to come yet, and he's expressing it's not time for me to be revealed to Israel yet. And he ends up, of course, doing what his mother asked him to do, and they fill those six huge water pots with water. And then as they pour it out, it's wine. You know, it goes in water, it comes out wine, right? So this miracle takes place. But Jesus says, my hour has not yet come to his mother. Uh, then later in John chapter 7 and verse 30, the Feast of Tabernacles is taking place. And Jesus uh, doesn't go up to the feast immediately. And this is where his brothers give him a hard time, you know, and say, well, if you really want to be known, you need to, you know, present yourself to the world. And we're told his brothers did not believe in him. So they're giving him a hard time about not going up. and But later on, he does go up. And the reason why he's going up sort of incognito, he does uh, present himself at the feast at a certain point on that last great day. But he goes up incognito because they're seeking to arrest him and kill him. We just came to the point in, in Mark where it says that the Pharisees and the Herodians are plotting together how they might destroy him. And so this is a situation where they're they're really trying to, to kill him at this point. And it says in John 7 and verse 30, it says they sought to take him. All right, here he is. We can arrest him. But no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. There's this time coming, this hour that's set. And at this point, hasn't happened yet. It hasn't come. John 8 uh, and verse 20 Jesus has just been telling them, I'm the light of the world. Anyone who follows me won't walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And as he's given this discourse in verse 20, John says, These words Jesus spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, and no one laid hands on him, for his hour had not yet come. They could not yet lay hands on him. So this, this hour is coming, and it's not very far in the future at this point in John. So... Time passes, something changes, and Jesus says the hour has come. This is found in John chapter 12, verses 23 through 28. Um, Jesus has just entered Jerusalem, the triumphal entry on this colt of a donkey. And Andrew and Philip... Uh, somebody, comes, a couple guys come to them and says, we would see Jesus. Recall that. And Jesus has been seeing people, right? But uncharacteristically, Jesus doesn't see these guys. Andrew and Philip ask Jesus. And Jesus answers them in verse 23. And he says, the hour has come. That hour that hadn't come yet. It has come now. That the Son of Man should be glorified. So he's speaking of this coming hour as being a glorification of himself. He says, most assuredly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it produces much grain. He who loves his life will lose it. 
And he who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. I mean, a lot of times we'll apply that to ourselves, and it does apply to us secondarily, but Jesus is talking about himself, of course. Unless this grain of wheat, he's the grain of wheat, it falls into the ground and dies. Um, it remains alone, but if it dies, it produces much grain. And so he's come to produce this fruit for the Father. And he says, he who loves his life will lose it. He who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Jesus uh, is behaving as one who hates his life in this world. And Jesus was full of joy. He experienced fellowship with the Father all the time, but this wasn't his home either. He had come for a purpose, and to fulfill that purpose, he has to not say, well, I think I'll just set up my kingdom now, and I'll live in this world, and it'll all be hunky-dory, you know. He says, if anyone serves me, in verse 26, let him follow me, and where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, him my father will honor. And then he says, my, now my soul is troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? He does beseech him three times. Is it possible for this cup to pass from me? But it's not. And so he says, not my will, but thy will be done. So he says, should I say, Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I came to this hour, this hour of betrayal, death. But it is, we do go beyond death, of course. He says, Father, glorify your name. And a voice came from heaven saying, I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. You know, the, uh, it's spoken of again in John 13. And this is the last night before Jesus goes to the cross. And it says in uh, John 13, verse 1, Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come, and that he should depart from this world to the Father. That's what this hour was all about. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And so he he serves them. He washes their feet. And he goes into the discourses there in John, preparing them for that which is to come. So the glorification Jesus speaks of concerns his soon coming sacrifice in which he is to take upon himself the judgment for the sins of the world. And this hour includes the fullness of the, the events through to the resurrection and the ascension and beyond into the eternal future. You know, someone has called it the irresistible future. And they talk about swan diving into the irresistible future because they know the Lord. You know, that future is the glory of the Lord. It's it's really something we can't imagine. We're told, you know, eternal life and, and fullness of joy in his presence, like we saying, but we, we can't fathom what it's going to be until we experience it. And we experience it if we believe in Jesus, follow him and serve him. Now in John 17, verses 1 through 5, Jesus is praying to the Father just before he is, goes to the garden prays there uh, privately and is betrayed. And he says in verse 1, Jesus spoke these words of previous chapters, lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that your son also may glorify you. As you've given him authority over all flesh that he should give eternal life to as many as you have given him. And this is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I have glorified you on the earth. I have finished the work which you have given me to do. And now, O oh Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. Jesus was there in glory. He came here. He laid aside his glory. And he's about to experience that glory again. But part of that glorification is actually... His death upon the cross. Jesus refers to the, his hour as the time of his being revealed or manifested to the nation of Israel. And particularly of the time of suffering that he endured upon the cross. But his hour also includes his triumph, his defeat of death, 
his resurrection never to die again, and his ascension to the Father's right hand. His hour is his glorification. The hour that has come implies that it is a set time, a time that has been planned. It was no accident. It wasn't a bad circumstances took place. It's not random. And this hour has been planned from before creation was begun. In 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 20, we're told, He indeed, Jesus, was foreordained, that's prog- prognosco, which means foreknown, He indeed was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest, revealed in these last times for you. The hour was actually determined and set in history, a specific time in which he would appear and in which he would present himself to Israel as their promised Messiah. And the time was declared to them so that they could recognize him when he was manifested. The time was foretold to the day. In Daniel chapter 9, verses 24 through 27, when the angel Gabriel gave Daniel the prophecy of the 70 weeks determined upon Israel. Daniel 9, 24 through 27, Gabriel says 70 weeks or 77s is the literal translation there are determined for your people. So he's speaking of national Israel and for your holy city. And these are the things that are going to be summed up in these 70 weeks. To finish the transgression, to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. And we haven't seen that yet. We haven't seen all those things yet. And he says it will be done by these 70 weeks or 77s. He goes on to say, Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, so until he shows up, there shall be seven weeks and sixty-two weeks. The street shall be built again and the wall even in troublesome times. So we've got the seven weeks seems to be related to this building of the wall. And then there's 62 weeks following that. And so we got 69 sevens, basically. Uh, And he says at this time, it's all going to be done up to the point where the Messiah shows up right at the end of that 69th week. And then he says after the 62 weeks, Messiah shall be cut off, which means he's going to be killed. Uh, I don't think a lot of people read this and paid attention to it, you know. Talking about the anointed one that will be cut off. He'll be killed, but not for himself. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. So something's going to happen at the end of this 62 weeks, which follow the seven weeks. Messiah is going to die. And the city and the sanctuary will be destroyed in this time period after this 62 weeks. He says, the end of it shall be with a flood until the end of the war. Desolations are determined. Then he shall confirm a covenant with many for one week. Now, in between this 62 weeks and this one week that is coming, that's where you are. That's where you are right now. It's the mystery of the church. At the cutting off of the Messiah and His death, burial, resurrection, the church was born and began. And it's a mystery in the Old Testament. It talks about Gentiles coming to the Lord, coming to know the Lord. But this whole mixture of Jew and Gentile in one body together, it's not mentioned there anywhere. When this, he says he confirmed the covenant with many for one week. When that one week begins, that time period is done. The church is done. It's the end of that period. He goes on here to finish the verse. He says, in the middle of the week, so the middle of this seven, he shall bring an end to sacrifice and offering. He says, he shall confirm a covenant with many for one week. Uh, Many see this as the Antichrist confirming the covenant with Israel for that seven-year tribulation period. 
This could be God confirming that covenant with them for one week. It's his covenant with them these 60 or these 70 weeks. It's God's covenant with them. And it says he shall bring an end to sacrifice and offering. Uh, certainly that's going to happen uh, with this one who makes the covenant with Israel. And on the wing of abomination shall be one who makes desolate even until the consummation which is determined is poured out on the desolate. So this last seven, it's a, a precarious time. The meaning of the word seven then, as we get 70 weeks, it is a period of seven. That's what it stands for. It can be a, a week of days or it can be a week of years. And they did have both within uh, Israel. You know, you had the creation week and they would have their six days you do your labor and your work, the seventh day you rest. But they also had a period of seven years, uh, which was called a heptad. And this was a week of a period of seven years and they, they would um, till their land and harvest their crops for six years. The seventh year of the land was to rest. And so as we read this 70 weeks, Daniel may have thought, well, is this days or years? But it would have become pretty clear after a point of time that this is years in which this takes place. So Israel should have known the time period. They could have known to the day if they investigated that the Messiah would appear on the earth. They were held accountable to know because God had told them. Gabriel gave them the starting time when the command goes to rebuild Jerusalem. There were several decrees that were put forth after the people returned to the land from the Babylonian captivity. Only one of those was to rebuild the city. The others were to rebuild the temple. So God gave them the starting time and when Gabriel gave this to Daniel. The start was still decades in the future, at least 80 years in the future. When Daniel received this word from God's presence, this hour was to the very day that the prophecy said the Messiah would come. In Luke 19, verses 41 through 45, it says, Now as he drew near, he saw the city and wept over it. So he's coming into Jerusalem this last uh, trip saying, if you had known, even you, especially in this, your day. This was the day for them to recognize him, to follow him. But he says, if you'd known, even you, especially in this, your day, the things that make for your peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For days will come when you, upon you when your enemies will build an embankment around you, surround you, and close you in on every side, and level you. And your children within you to the ground, and they will not leave in you one stone upon another. This is what he said when they pointed out the buildings of the temple to him. He said, the day's going to come. Why? Because you did not know the time of your visitation. They should have recognized it. And some people did recognize this is the time. They were expecting him, but for the most part they were not. If we look earlier in Luke 13... Verses 31 through 35, uh, we find these Pharisees coming to Jesus on the very, on that very day, some Pharisees came saying to him, get out and depart from here for Herod wants to kill you. And he said to them, go tell that fox. <laughs> Behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow and the third day I shall be perfected, glorified. Nevertheless, I must journey today, tomorrow, and the day following. For it cannot be that a prophet should perish outside of Jerusalem. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings. But you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate. And assuredly, I say to you, you shall not see me until the time comes when you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. If Messiah has not come by this time, this set time, uh, 30 A.D., 
then the promise is broken. And there is no legitimate Messiah coming. Um, this date is set according to the consummate chronologist Floyd Nolan Jones. But you can count it down. You find that decree, the date of that decree was 445, 444 B.C. You count the 70 weeks, which would be 483 years. And, and the, the calculation gets complicated, but you could do it if you if you desire to. Other people have done it. Lord, uh, Floyd and Nolan Jones, I think, is, is uh, the latest and probably the most accurate of those. And that date is far past, right? <laughs> it's in the 30s A.D. If Jesus was not the Messiah, by the way, there's no other legitimate candidate in that time. Then there is no Messiah. Because he did not arrive by the date specified by God. Messiah hasn't come. God has failed. Or the devil has prevailed. Did he miss the train? He was supposed to get the 450 from Paddington and he didn't, didn't make it to the gate on time. But Jesus is the Messiah. And hope is alive. Hope is not dead. In Jeremiah chapter 8, verses 18 through 22, we see uh, that Jeremiah is experiencing great sorrow in the loss of hope. He says in verse 18, I would comfort myself in sorrow. My heart is faint in me. Listen, the voice, the cry of the daughter of my people from a far country. Is not the Lord in Zion? Is not her king in her? Why have they provoked me to anger with their carved images? With foreign idols. The harvest is past. The summer is ended. And we are not saved. The end of hope. For the hurt of the daughter of my people. I am hurt. I am mourning. Astonishment has taken hold of me. Is there no balm in Gilead? Is there no physician there? Why then is there no recovery. For the health of the daughter of my people. This is. What happens when you're out of hope, when you have no hope? It's too late for the Messiah to come if he has not come already. He can come for the second time, but he can't come for the first time because he already missed it. And so Jesus' hour has come. It's time for him to be glorified. As Paul writes in Galatians uh, chapter 4, verses 4 and 5, when the fullness of the time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. His hour comes in the fullness of time, the time that God set beforehand and proclaimed through Daniel, to, or through Gabriel to Daniel and thus to us. So Jesus comes to the nation on the specified date of Nisan 10. Jewish month of Nisan, 10th day. This is the day upon which the families of Israel selected their Passover lamb. This is what we know as Palm Sunday. If Floyd Nolan Jones has it correct, it was March 31st, 30 A.D. Sunday, day after the Sabbath. So they were to take this uh, lamb. It was, you know, we're at the Passover feast. So it goes back to Exodus 12. They were to select a lamb for a family on the 10th. They were then to examine that lamb for four days until Nisan 14. And then they were to kill that lamb at twilight. They were to roast that lamb. And then they were to eat of the Passover lamb. And we know Jesus is our Passover. And he was pointed out as the Lamb of God by John the Baptist. In John chapter 12 again, earlier than what we read before, verses 12 through 16, it says, The next day a great multitude that had come to the feast, when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him and cried out, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. This is Psalm 118, verses 25 and 26. Then Jesus, when he found a young donkey, sat on it, as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. The next time he comes, he's going to be on a white horse. 
But at this point, he's coming on a donkey. He's called Zechariah 9, verse 9. Verse 16, it says, His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things were written about him and that they had done these things to him. In Luke 19, verses 39 and 40, says, Some of the Pharisees called to him from the crowd uh, on this Sunday and said, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. And he answered and said to them, I tell you that if these stones, or if these should keep silent, the stones would immediately cry out. If those people had not said, Hosanna, blessed is he, <coughs> excuse me, who comes in the name of the Lord, the stones themselves would have cried out. Now, that would have been interesting. This event cannot go without proclamation and glory. The king of Israel has come. This period of time from Jesus' birth to his ascension is chocked full of prophecies fulfilled. And this last week is the most intense time of prophetic fulfillment in history thus far. We have seen prophecies fulfilled in our days. We've seen Israel becoming a nation again. We've seen Jerusalem reclaimed by Israel. We see the nations aligning in last day scenarios that we find in Ezekiel. There will be another intense flurry of prophecy fulfillment from the rapture to the second coming of Jesus. And then still more prophecies to be fulfilled through to the millennium and on into the new heavens and the new earth. Well, once they chose the lamb, the families of Israel were to examine the lamb for blemishes. They were not allowed to offer any imperfect uh, animals for sin sacrifices. And they would examine this lamb for four days until Nisan 14. And no doubt, children in the home would get very attached to this little lamb. Nisan 14, April 4th, 30 A.D. Jesus was examined continually during his public ministry and intensely during the final four days. The ones who desired to kill him, the religious leaders, could find no legitimate basis for accusing him. They bribed one of his apostles to betray him, and they held a mock trial after and brought forth witnesses who falsely accused him, even the Gentile governor, after interrogating him with scourges, declared, I find no fault in him at all. And he says this three different times. And he also said he's done nothing deserving of death. He says that twice. That's in John 18:19 and Luke 23. As the prophecy in Daniel said, he will be cut off, killed, but not for himself. There was no cause of death in him. He was the only person of whom this could be said when it comes to the judgment of God. Jesus was crucified on Nisan 14, <coughs> excuse me, dying in the afternoon, buried before sunset, which began a high Sabbath day. I don't know what's going on here. It began a high Sabbath day, the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. A Thursday evening. I know we celebrate Good Friday. A lot of people think it was Friday. Some people think it was Wednesday. Um, I don't know that it can definitively be determined. But this one makes sense to me. Uh, that <clears throat> you have two Sabbaths then back to back. You have the high Sabbath day, first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, Thursday evening, followed by the regular Sabbath on Friday evening. <coughs> Excuse me. So you've got these two Sabbaths back to back from Thursday evening to uh, Saturday evening, two, two days of Sabbaths. No one could get to the tomb to anoint the body of Jesus for burial until Sunday morning. And by then, of course, it was too late. Thus, Mary of Bethany is commended for her anointing of Jesus with the very expensive oil of spikenard the week before. John 19, verses 16 through 37, we'll just read this account of um, his death. It says, He delivered 
to them to be delivered him to them to be crucified. So this is Pilate. Then they took Jesus and led him away. And he, bearing his cross, went out to a place called the place of a skull, which is in Hebrew called Golgotha, where they crucified him and two others with him, one on either side and Jesus in the center. And Pilate wrote a title and put it on the cross. And the writing was Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. Then many of the Jews read this title for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. And it was written in Hebrew, Greek and Latin, all the common languages of the day. Therefore, the chief priest of the Jews said to Pilate, do not write the king of the Jews, but he said, I'm the king of the Jews. We don't want people to get the idea this could really be the king of the Jews. And Pilate says, what I've written, I've written. You know, you've pushed me around enough now that I've allowed this innocent man to be crucified. I'm going to stick to my gun. Then the soldiers, when they had crucified Jesus, took his garments and made four parts to each soldier apart and also the tunic. And the tunic was without seam, woven from the top in one piece. And they said, therefore, among themselves, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it, whose it shall be, that the scripture might be fulfilled, which says they divided my garments among them and for my clothing they cast lots. Psalm 22:18. Therefore, the soldiers did these things. Now there stood by the cross of Jesus his mother, his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. And when Jesus therefore saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing by, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. And then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, that disciple took her to his own home. And after this, Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished, that the scripture might be fulfilled, said, I thirst. And now a vessel full of sour wine was sitting there, and they filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on hyssop, and put it to his mouth. And that's the fulfillment of prophecy as well. So when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. Therefore, because it was the preparation day that the body should not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. Then the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who was crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. He gave up his spirit. You know, he didn't. Die from natural causes, you might say. He just chose to leave. <laughs> it was done. He was free to leave. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear and immediately blood and water came out. And he who has seen has testified and his testimony is true. And he knows that he's telling the truth so that you may believe. For these things were done that the scripture should be fulfilled. Not one of his bones shall be broken. Psalm 34:20. And again, another scripture says, They shall look on him whom they pierced. Zechariah 12:10, Which is really a scripture mostly relating to the second coming. But here it's applied to these folks because they see him pierced, right? But uh, at the second coming, everybody's going to see him. And they, the Jews will mourn for him because they shall look on him whom they pierced. So it's important to note that Jesus was dead. It was confirmed. Pilate was surprised that Jesus was dead already. In Mark chapter 15, verses 42 through 47, it says, Now when evening had come, because it was the preparation day, that is, the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent council member, who was himself waiting for the kingdom of God, coming and taking courage, went into Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. And Pilate marveled that he was already dead. And summoning the centurion, he asked him if he had been dead for some time. So when he found out from the centurion, he granted the body to Joseph. The centurion said, yeah, he's been dead for a while. Then he brought he bought fine linen, took him down, wrapped him in the linen, and he laid him in a tomb which had been hewn out of the rock and rolled a stone against the door of the tomb. And Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, observed where he was laid. So there's no mistake about the tomb's location. The women were there. They saw where it was. 
you know, one of the stories that you know, where they try to deny the resurrection is, oh, they went to the wrong tomb. This would be sim- uh, easily and simply rectified. The Roman authorities, the Jewish leaders, could just take them to the right tomb <laughs> and roll the stone away and say, see, there he is. This event in John 19, verses 38 through 42, is told like this. After this, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took the body of Jesus. He comes out out of the uh, open, out into the open as a follower, a believer in Jesus. And Nicodemus, who at first came to Jesus by night, also came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about a hundred pounds. And they took the body of Jesus and bound it in strips of linen with the spices, as the custom of the Jews is to bury. And now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So there they laid Jesus because of the Jews' preparation day, for the tomb was nearby. So they took him there, put him in the tomb, 100 pounds of spices mixed, you know, and put inside the linen cloths that they buried him in. So he was dead and buried. The tomb was closed and sealed. And we come to today in history. The reason the church worships on Sunday and not on Saturday, the Jewish Sabbath, Jesus declared, it is finished. All the work of redemption was completed with the death of Jesus on the cross. The only thing left is the response of men and women to that work. It must be applied to the lives of sinners if they are going to be redeemed, bought back from sin and death, reconciled to God in new life. The work is finished, but we do not know that yet at this point in history where Jesus is in the tomb. Jesus is dead. He claims that it is finished. Jesus was the most amazing man to ever live. He said and did fantastic things, but he's dead. When men die, they're done in this world. They may leave behind a good legacy, a moral influence, or great words to live by, but they're gone from the land of the living. So we don't have confirmation of the truth that it is finished. Without a resurrection, we have no proof that it is finished. There are a couple of issues in this regard. First, the resurrection was prophesied to take place. The song we sang from Psalm 16 this morning. Without it, we would have to conclude that Jesus' work was not acceptable to the Father. In 1 Corinthians 15, verses 14 through 17, Paul writes and says, If Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty. And your faith is also empty. A Christianity that doesn't believe in the resurrection of Jesus is nothing. He says, yes, and we're found false witnesses of God because we have testified of God that he raised up Christ, whom he did not raise up if, in fact, the dead do not rise. There were some in Corinth who were denying the resurrection. He says, for if the dead do not rise, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile, empty. You're still in your sins. We have no confirmation that it is finished, that the sin debt has been paid, unless Jesus gets up. In Romans 4.25, we're told that Jesus was delivered up because of our offenses and was raised because of our justification. It's confirmation of his work of redemption being accepted by the Father, that he was raised from the dead. We are justified because he is risen from the dead. The fact that Jesus was raised confirms that those who trust in him are justified or made righteous in God's sight. If we were not raised, then we cannot be assured that our sins are forgiven. In fact, the opposite is true. Secondly, the resurrection confirms for us the identity of Jesus. In Romans chapter 1 and verse 4, Paul says he was declared to be the Son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. We know that he's the son of God, the one and only, because of this resurrection. We know he is who he claimed to be by the resurrection. He's the only one in history to be raised from the dead, never to die again. 
and we sing songs and I know many of them will say Jesus has risen from the dead. The correct term is Jesus is risen from the dead because others have risen from the dead, but they're not alive now. He is risen from the dead. That's eternal present tense. He's alive, never to die again. He is risen, and uh, he has risen. No, not yet. He is, Lord, he is, Lord. He is risen from the dead, and he is the Lord. <laughs> well, anyway, it should be present tense in both of those. Third, without the resurrection, he can't help us today. Because he's alive, he's able to be active in comforting, strengthening, and empowering his followers. In Hebrews 7.25, we're told, Therefore he is also able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. You're not stuck on your own trying to do what needs to be done in this life. He is with you. He will guide you. He will give you strength. He will uphold and carry you. This is his promise to those who trust in him. And so we'll read one passage on this Sunday morning in history. Matthew 28, uh, verses 1 through 10 says, Now after the Sabbath, as the first day of the week began to dawn, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone from the door and sat on it. His countenance was like lightning and his clothing as white as snow. And the guards shook for fear of him and became like dead men. Guards were were still hanging around there. And the angel answered and said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here. For he is risen, as he said, come see the place where the Lord lay. And go quickly and tell his disciples that he is risen from the dead. And indeed, he is going before you into Galilee. There you will see him. Behold, I have told you. So they went out quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to bring his disciples word. And as they went to tell his disciples, behold, Jesus met them saying, Rejoice! So they came and held him by the feet and worshipped him. You know, one of the Gospels, Jesus is telling Mary Magdalene, don't cling to me. You know, I think some versions say, don't touch me. It wasn't that she was touching him, but she wasn't going to let him go. You know, know, we lost you once and now, you know, you're going to have to drag me around from here on out, you know. So he he says, uh, well, they held him by the feet and worshipped him. And then Jesus said to them, do not be afraid. (laughs) Go and tell my brethren to go to Galilee and there they will see me. Now the apostles do not immediately go to Galilee. So Jesus accommodates them and appears to them in various places around Jerusalem. The upper room, the road to Emmaus and others. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days. And Luke tells us in in Acts chapter 1, Verses 1 through 3, he says, The former account I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and to teach, until the day in which he was taken up, after he, through the Holy Spirit, had given commandments to the apostles whom he had chosen, to whom he presented himself alive after his suffering by many infallible proofs, being seen by them during 40 days and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. In other words, they could not have been mistaken concerning the fact that he was alive from the dead. Last week we read the the experience of Thomas, you know, who said, unless I, you know, stick my fingers in the nail marks in his hands and my hand in his side, I'm not going to believe that he's alive. And Jesus appears and says, go ahead, Thomas. Jesus appeared to them in closed rooms without using a door or a window. He ate fish with them. That is, he was alive bodily, not just as a spirit. He proved his knowledge of them from before his death. That is, he was the same Jesus who had called them and taught them for three and a half years. We find that this is integral to the gospel. 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 8 
Paul says, Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received and in which you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast that word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I deliver to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. In other words, it was prophesied. And that he was buried and he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. It was prophesied. And that he was seen by Cephas, as Peter, then by the twelve. After that, he was seen by over 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain to the present, but some have fallen asleep. So you can go talk to these 457 people, or however many were left. Uh, others have fallen asleep, which means they they died in the Lord. After that, he was seen by James, then by all the apostles, then last of all, he was seen by me also, Paul says, as by one born out of due time. These are the resurrection appearances of Jesus. So we can consider the fact that even liberal scholars and historians agree uh, on these following basic facts. Jesus was publicly executed and died by crucifixion. His tomb was empty three days later. The body was missing. It's interesting that they never deny that the tomb was empty. They just try to come up with an excuse as to why it's empty that doesn't involve somebody that was dead coming back to life. His disciples believed he rose from the dead and that he suddenly or that he appeared to them. So they had, you know, there was no doubt about their uh, belief. Actually, they knew. They didn't, they didn't have to believe. They knew that he was alive from the dead Amen. and that he had appeared to them. And this explains their behavior. James, a former skeptic and half-brother of Jesus, was suddenly radically changed. He's one of those brothers who did not believe in him. And then the church persecutor, Paul, a Pharisee, was also suddenly and dramatically changed. These are facts that liberal Scholars looking at the scriptures will agree upon, you know, they'll argue about other things, but they don't deny these facts. And these facts, they uh, declare Jesus is risen from the dead. Just these few. We got much more, but you don't need more. There's no adequate explanation for the behavior of Jesus' apostles apart from a resurrection of Jesus from the dead. These men were transformed because they were convinced by many infallible proofs, according to Luke, that Jesus, whom they knew to be dead, and his movement was dead. The first Jesus movement was dead. So this Jesus, whom they knew to be dead, this same Jesus was alive from the dead, also as prophesied in the Old Testament and by Jesus himself numerous times, saying that he was going to be uh, taken and killed and that on the third day he would rise again. <clears throat> One man says, The disciples truly saw the resurrected Christ. Only an event of this magnitude could turn scared, scattered, and skeptical disciples with no prior concept an expectation of a crucified and risen Messiah into courageous proclaimers of the gospel willing to suffer and die for their belief that Jesus rose from the grave. What was their motive if it wasn't true? Christianity faced huge obstacles as a brand new movement. They had no money. They taught about love, faith, sin, and self-denial. And they were subject to intense hatred and persecution. Most of the disciples were killed for their faith. We saw some of those uh, examples last week. They followed the example of their Messiah. So these men died for the truth that they knew. It was not just that they believed that Jesus was raised from the dead. They knew that Jesus was raised from the dead. So Jesus is alive. Because he lives, you can live also. If you have believed and confessed him, then you do live the life which cannot be taken away from you. It's life eternal. Romans chapter 6 verses 8 through 10 says, If we died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more. 
Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. In Acts chapter 2, Peter, part of his sermon on the day of Pentecost, in verse 21, he says, It shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And he's quoting a passage from Joel. Joel 2.32 is this scripture. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs which God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves also know. He's speaking to all these people who have gathered for the Feast of Pentecost. And they're from all parts of the kingdom, but they were there at other feasts. And they knew the things that Jesus had done. It says, him being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God. It was all planned ahead of time. You've taken by lawless hands. You've crucified him and put him to death. Whom God raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be held by it. It wasn't possible for death to hold him. For David says concerning him, I foresaw the Lord always before my face, for he is at my right hand, that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart rejoiced and my tongue was glad. Moreover, my flesh also will rest in hope. For you will not allow my soul, or will not leave my soul in Hades, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. You have made known to me the ways of life. You will make me full of joy in your presence. Psalm 16, verses 8 through 11. This is also uh, told to us in Romans chapter 10, verses 9 through 13. He says, If you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. For the scripture says, Whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. Isaiah 28:16 For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek for the same Lord over all is rich to all who call upon him for whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved again Joel 2:32 Whoever calls on the name of the Lord might be saved could possibly be saved whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved so if you believe in your heart that God raised him from the death, you can from the dead, you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. And he tells us that is how we come to salvation. So he is risen. <laughs>